Good evening. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to push through 13 to get to chapter 14, because that is my favorite chapter in the whole book of 1 Samuel, strangely enough. That's why I told Michael, I'm going to do chapter 14, and he said, bah. I think that's what he said. Is that what you said? Yeah, bah. That's a good part. (laughs) And so he'll pick up where I leave off. But let's start reading chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash, and in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers. I never knew that was a word until just the other day. noticed it. And soldiers as numerous as the sand of the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in the pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilgal. Saul remained at Gilgal, And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offerings, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattered and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600 change of events that takes place. As we read this portion, we see things change quickly. It wasn't long ago that Saul had routed the Philistines and everyone was on board and following after him and a few small incidents take place and all of a sudden, he's not the guy anymore. All of a sudden, the kingdom is not going to remain with him and I want to ask just, what do you think the big deal is here? What did Saul do that was so awful that caused Samuel to reply that now the kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to someone else? What are your thoughts on that? So he kind of took, overstepped his bounds. We did see, uh, we talked about that there was supposed to be a division where there was a king and then there was also a prophet and there was also um, priest. 
those three offices were supposed to be held by three different people, except in the person of Jesus, who occupied them all. And so we do see Saul stepping across that bound a little bit. Any other thoughts on what's taking place? Panicking? Okay. Right, and we're kind of having to read into a little bit of what's taking place, but in chapter 10, verse 8, we do read, Samuel say, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. And so that was Samuel's word to Saul, which was God's word to Saul, and Saul did, in fact, panic. He panicked, but he also not only panicked, he actually started losing faith. Faith in what God was going to do, faith in what Samuel had told him to do. And Hebrews 11.6 tells us that it's impossible to please God without faith. And that anyone comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And so here we see Saul, who's supposed to be the leader, actually not having faith, starting to panic and thinking, I I must do something. And his faith, faith is tested and faith is tested when these similar things happen, I think, in our lives. I put down a number of things, three things that happen when faith is tested. It's tested when danger comes. When things are difficult, faith is tested. Faith is tested when fear takes over. When you become afraid, all of a sudden your faith is tested. And faith is also tested when human support fails. When those around you, or maybe your job or circumstances, let you down, faith is then tested. And what happens then, when his faith was tested, is he didn't pass the test. And instead, he was disobedient. He went ahead and said, okay, I gotta, I've got to do something because it doesn't look like God is doing anything. The people are afraid. I'm afraid. I better take matters into my hand and make something happen here. And instead of obeying Samuel's words, he became disobedient. And then he actually justified that disobedience. He justified that disobedience saying that he had to seek the Lord. I mean, come on, the people are going and, you know, I have to seek the Lord to find out what's going on. And so now he's trying to justify that disobedience. And then he actually excused his disobedience by blaming others, including Samuel. If you would have been here on time, I wouldn't have had to be disobedient. I could have maintained these things and, and done what was right. And so we see that this testing of faith leads to this disobedience because he doesn't trust God. And he puts his concerns and circumstances into this place where now they are more important than what is taking place and what God is doing. And so Samuel comes and he tells him, hey, kingdom's not going to be yours, which is an interesting thought because up to this point, it could have been. But God was seeking someone after his own heart, and we know that's going to be David but it could have been Saul. At least it seems to imply that. And what a a tragedy that one event could mark the difference in this man's life and legacy. This one lack of faith, moment where he doesn't trust, this one act of disobedience could have such long-range repercussions. And that's a haunting thought to think that those things where you're in disobedience have that kind of lasting effect. We're going to go on, like I said, because I want to get to chapter 14. Verse 16, it says, Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah, in Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah, I always want to say Oprah, in the vicinity of Shul, another toward Beth Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zebarim, facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, 
because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, maddox, axes, and stickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and maddox, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes for repointing goads. So they're in a hard way. Okay, we're going to go to battle and we're getting farm tools. And then we're having a hard time sharpening the farm tools. So we got pitchforks that are dull, axes that are dull, stickles that aren't sticky, you know, all these things that are going goads that aren't sharp. I mean, all these things that would are, first of all, subpar. And we're going to go against the Philistine army that has the chariots and their charioteers. All these things are against us. Have you ever gone to a place, maybe it's, you know, you're playing softball or something and you go to play and there you are in your cutoffs and the other team comes and they've all got full uniforms on and they got sliding shorts and they've got their own personal bats and bat bags and you think, oh my, oh, that we're grossly outnumbered here. You know, they have all the right gear and you don't. And so there's this feeling of inadequacy as they show up with their pitchforks and their sticks and they know that there are chariots out there. Verse 22, so on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now that's the stage that we're setting for chapter 14. They're in this desperate situation. Everyone's in a panic. They don't have the weapons that the Philistines have. They're grossly outnumbered. All they've got is sticks and pitchforks that aren't even sharp. There's only two swords among them, Saul and Jonathan. And so that's the situation. And put your thoughts and situation into this frame of mind. Whatever you're facing... Similar to what is facing Saul, Jonathan, and the people of Israel here. Whatever it is that is weighing upon you, that is causing you to fret, that is causing you to fear, those circumstances, I want you to put those circumstances in this place. And as we see their problem, let's take what Jonathan now does And let's apply it to our problems. Let's see if we can learn something from what he does in this circumstance and see if we can apply it to our life and our circumstances. And what can we profit from these things? Jonathan is one of my heroes in scripture. He is the kind of guy that you want for your friend. Because he really is that. We see that there is such a lack of selfish intent. So much so even later on with David, as we'll see. But right now he's just this guy who has, unlike Saul, incredible faith. And so, verse 23, it says, A detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass of Michmash. And then verse one, one day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibba under the pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, he was a son of Ichabod's brother, that guy, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, and son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Boses and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Gibeah. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost, to those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. 
Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We will cross toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will say, we will, we will stay where we are and not go to up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So let's stop there right now. Is this a good idea? Is there anything in what he's doing here that makes sense? We're grossly outnumbered. Let's go pick a fight. And not only that, as I go with this armor bearer who's probably just a kid, who's just holding his stuff. There's only one sword between the two of them. He goes, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go and then we'll stand up so that they can see us. What kind of strategy is this? And then if they say, okay, come over here, we know that the Lord has given them into our hands. Such strange thinking here. And and I want to examine this because this passage of Scripture literally changed my life and is one of the reasons I'm even here and a part of what is now Genesis. It is because of the things that I heard from this passage and, and learned from this passage that provoked me to move forward. And the first thing I want to look at is just the initiative that takes place. Jonathan has in his mind, come on, let's go do something. Let's stop sitting around here. let's, Let's get something going because he just has it in his mind to do that that that's the right thing to do. And again, we've talked about this before, but the world is changed by people of intention. If John did not if Jonathan did not take the initiative to pursue victory, there would have been no victory. And we're going to read about that later on. And this is something that is really important to recognize that sometimes you have to take the initiative. Now, again, put whatever circumstances in your life that you're facing. Maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe it's a situation in relationships. Maybe it's a situation that you're dealing with with family. Whatever that situation is, if you take no initiative to make things go forward, then nothing will go forward. This passage became important to me when I was dismissed over at the church that I was at, and I found myself facing life without a job and not sure what I was going to do. And at that time, when I realized, okay, I'm not going to have a job, I've been here and I've gotten used to this place but now that job is being taken away. What am I going to do? There were a couple of positions that were offered to me. Uh, one was to be a full-time worship leader at a, a Calvary chapel that was pretty well established. And there was another potential to be a part of a worship leading position as well as maybe even a part of a team of a very large uh, church also at that time. And so these two things were open to me. But in my heart, I had this desire to pursue this role as a pastor because I felt like I wanted to take the things that I was learning about God and how God wants us to relate to the people around us, and I wanted to communicate that, and I just wasn't able to do that really where I was at. And so I desired to move to that kind of position, but then when things were removed, I found myself, okay, what do I do? I don't have a job. This is available to me. I can take this job, I I can keep my home, my family, or else what do I do? My choice was then to drive up to Napa and see about starting a potential work that was there that was offered uh, to me as well. And so I thought, well, I need to take the initiative. And Jonathan didn't sit there and wait for things to happen. He actually took the initiative to do something. And this happened while I was in Wales, actually, 
back in 2007, I believe it was. And I was on a bus and I remember reading this passage and thinking, I need to do something or I'm going to settle for nothing. And I feel like that's the the case many times for us. If we will not take the initiative to do something, whether it's in that work situation, whether it's in that relational situation, that family situation, many times what we do is we settle for nothing because we need to take the initiative to make something happen. And Jonathan did. Jonathan took the initiative and he went forward. And as he approached these people, there was a cliff and he had to make the effort to get to this place. And a lot of times it is an effort. The the second thing I want to... The second thing, that was interesting. The second thing, I developed a list all of a sudden. The second thing I want to see is that there is not only initiative that's needed to be taken, but there's also uncertainty. And we don't like uncertainty. But in in verse 6 it says, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of the uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Now that's not a whole lot of reassuring there. How would you like to be that armor bearer? Follow me. Perhaps God will be with us. And that word perhaps kind of means maybe. Let's go. Maybe God will be with us. Well, maybe he won't. And so we see that there is uncertainty. And, you know, a lot of times Christians can come across as know-it-alls. We can come across as if we know everything about everything. After all, we have the scripture, and so we we can give you a verse for just about everything, and it can come across as if life is filled with certainty. You just should be able to know that, but that isn't how life is. Life is actually filled with uncertainty. And if you wait till you're certain about what's going to happen, you'll probably do very little. There's going to be uncertainty and relationships. When you first have to ask, do you like me? Now, you don't say it quite like that because you're trying to put your false face forward. You know, I'm very secure in myself. Hey, I like you. You like me? Okay, good. And then you go home. Oh, she likes me. But it's that uncertainty. What if she says no? What if she doesn't like me? What if? This doesn't work out. What if this job doesn't happen? What if this role as a pastor falls through and I end up with nothing? There is this uncertainty. And sometimes we can be uncertain about God's character. Does God care? Does he really know what's going on? Or God's ability, Does is he really able to help? But Jonathan wasn't. He was certain that God could do it by a little or by few or by many. God was able to do it, but he wasn't certain what the outcome was going to be. And life is going to be filled with those uncertainties, and are they going to stop you from moving? You see, the Edisons, the Da Vinci's, these people who were brilliant, who influenced the world, accomplished more than we ever did, but it was because they risked more than we ever did, and also because they failed probably more than we ever did. It wasn't because, oh, these things are certain it's going to happen. It's because they tried and then, okay, let me try again and let me try again. And uncertainty is a part of life. But God still cares and God can still do the miraculous. Will he? Perhaps. And if you only know the perhaps... Are you still willing to trust the character? Are you still willing to trust God's character and his ability, even if you are uncertain about how it's going to play out for you? Or do you have to be certain? You have to know what's really going to happen. See, it wasn't certain whether Jonathan was going to succeed or not. But he was going to do it. And he was certain that God could deliver him. He had faith in God. How it played out, he didn't know. It, it kind of reminds me, remember Daniel, when his Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego friends were thrown into the fire, and just as they were getting thrown into the fire, 
the king was going to say, yeah, you know, is your God going to deliver you? And they said, well, you know, your majesty, if, if God delivers us from your hand or not, he might. But if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship your image of gold that you've set up. In other words, if he does, he can, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship. There was this ambiguity, this, I don't know. How is it that we come across as if we know everything? How is it that I think we turn people off sometimes because we have this know-it-all attitude at times, especially people who are not of faith, who are searching, and then we act as if we've got it all together. And sometimes the deepest conversations you can have with someone are in those places of uncertainty, those places of honesty, of struggle. I've had some wonderful conversations with parents who aren't followers of Christ in the struggles that they're having with their kids and being able to share the struggles that I've had with my kids and not coming across as if my kids had it all together and we didn't have any problems. But by able to, by being able to talk to them honestly about the struggles that we go through and the uncertainties that I have, it actually was opportunity for deeper conversations of faith to take place. And uncertainty is a part of our lives, and it's going to be. Am I going to live my life regardless of certainty for something greater than myself, or am I going to be paralyzed by the fear and uncertainty? I don't know, so I don't move. Or is there something more important than me that is worth moving for? And so there is this uncertainty but it's worth the risk. And that's the next point. Risk is just really another word for faith. In the Christian conversation, you know, if you have problems, you just need more faith. If you're sick, you just have to have faith. If you need more money or a promotion, you just have to have faith. If you have enough faith, everything is fixed and better. When did faith become that? When did faith become anything other than risk? Abraham had faith because he left the people that he knew to a country where he didn't know where he was going. Does that sound secure to you? Does that sound like, oh yeah, that's faith. How secure, how comfy. See, the idea of faith isn't this cozy, comfortable feeling. This idea of faith is you don't know. It's risky. And we see that in verse 8. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over toward them. And let them see us risk. We're going to let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will say where we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them to into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistines outpost. Look, said the Philistines. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes that they are hiding in. Risk. They did it. They stood up. They said, let's stand up and let's make ourselves known. Let's take that step and let's be willing to risk these things. Again, what kind of strategy is this? Does that make any kind of sense? Only if you want to see something happen more than you want to be safe. And I wonder if that might be what's really necessary to see is, do I really want to see something happen or do I just want to be safe? And as I saw the risk that Jonathan took in my own life, I thought, well, the safe thing to do would be to take the job that's already established where I don't have to worry about moving, transporting my family, which was in another story all by itself, That's the safe thing to do. The risky thing to do is to pursue this idea of starting a a church and seeing something develop. That's not certain. I might have to move. I don't know what part of my family is going to come with me. I don't have a job. That's very risky. What am I going to do? And I had to think, what do I really want to see take place? Because for me, this was a crossroads. This was asking myself, 
do you want to be secure or do you really want to make a difference in the lives of people? Is it important enough for you for you to take that risk? Because if it's not, then you'll just stay where you are. You won't stand up and say, here I am, here I am, let's make something happen. You will stay where you are and nothing will happen. And that's where I had to just ask myself, am I going to do this or not? Am I going to turn down that job that's in Southern California waiting for me? Or am I going to pursue the risk because I want to see what can happen? Because I believe God wants to do something. And I believe God can, whether it's by few or by many, whether it's by me or whether it's by someone else. Is it going to work? Perhaps. Perhaps not. Does it matter? Is it worth taking the risk? If you refuse to risk, you are choosing not to live. I firmly believe that. Love is the biggest risk. And you cannot love without risk. And not to risk love is to abandon life itself. Because there is no guarantee how someone else is going to react or respond to the love that you give. And so it's the ultimate vulnerability. It's the ultimate risk. Some people remain single their whole lives because they're afraid of being rejected. Love demands risks, and it rewards those risks. But not always when and how we want. And so it's an incredible risk that we have to take if we want to see the work of God take place in our lives. The next thing that happens is there has to be an advance. In other words, you, you've seen that there is going to be uncertainty. You're recognizing those things. You recognize that you have to take the risk. You take the initiative, the uncertainty. You take the risk, and then you have to advance. In verse 12, we see the advance. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. And now when you hear that, what do you think? Uh Uh-oh. But listen to Jonathan's response. So Jonathan said to the armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into a hand of Israel. He saw something different. I would look at that and see, oh no, they called my bluff. Jonathan saw this and said, the Lord has done this. He has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right beside him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed. His armor bearer followed and killed behind him. Did I read that right? I read that wrong. The Philistine fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In all, in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half an acre. Advancing is such an important thing, and what we see here is the sign that was given by God was actually a call to danger, not to safety. It's a sign if they stand up and say, come up here to the battle. Maybe the call of God that we're not hearing is because it's calling us to a place we're afraid to go. But what God was doing was calling them to a place of danger, not to a place of safety. And he was calling them to something bigger than themselves. It's a call for something bigger than his fear or even himself. The call was to victory for the nation of Israel. And you see, the call of God is leaning forward, not falling backward. The call of God is advancing the kingdom of God, not sitting back and waiting for something to happen. Verse 13, it's one of those verses where it's like, well, of course, it should be here, but I think it's telling. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. Of course, what did you think he was going to use? His chin? 
But you see, sometimes that's how life is. It's not magic. Sometimes it's tedious. Sometimes it's exhausting. Sometimes you have to make the effort to get there. It's in our minds so many times that, well, if God wants it to happen, he'll open the door. Or if God closes the door, he'll open a window. Well, what if there's the wall and God just wants you to get over it? And you have to use your hands and feet. What if what God wants for you is difficult and you have to make the difficult choices and the difficult decisions and put your faith on the line and put your life on the line and put your finances on the line and commit yourself to it and say, I'm going to get there and I have to use my hands and my feet and I have to work my way through it. And there is no easy way out of this. There is no easy way around it. You just have to do it. To advance, you have to move forward. There was an article in Newsweek years ago. I didn't write down the date. I just copied part of it because it was a powerful article about a medic named Richard Jaddick who was a Navy doctor, and he was shuffling papers while the Marines were heading out to Iraq. And once, many years before, Jaddick had been a Marine officer, but he had missed the 1991 Gulf War, so he was stuck behind a recruiter's desk, and now he was looking forward to leading a comfortable life as what he called a gentleman's urologist. Jaddick, with the Navy rank of lieutenant commander, was 38 years old, too old, really, to be a combat surgeon. And so in many ways, you think, oh, good, he, he's missed it. He didn't have to go into battle. He got out of it. He played it safe, but then... A medical committee searching for help came knocking on his door because of an acute doctor shortage. They were having trouble finding a junior-grade Navy doctor to go with the 1st Battalion, 8th Marine Regiment, to Iraq. Jaddick at the time was one of the senior medical officers at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Who could we send? They asked Jaddick, thought for a moment. He said, well, I could go. His friends told him he was crazy. His wife A pediatrician nine months pregnant with their first child was none too happy. But in the summer of 2004, five days after the birth of his child, Commander Jaddick shipped out to Iraq. The night before the assault, Jaddick hopped into a command Humvee, taking a reconnaissance mission from the headquarters base outside the city. He wanted to see what he was up against in treating traumatic injuries. There is something known as a golden hour. A badly injured person who gets to the hospital within an hour is much more likely to be saved, but Jaddick knew that in combat, the golden hour doesn't exist. Left unaided, Jaddick knew that the wounded could die within 15 minutes, and there are some things that could kill him in under six minutes. If they had an internal arterial bleed, it could be three minutes. Jaddick knew that the helicopter evacuations were out of the question. There was too great a risk the choppers would get shot down. Casualties would have to be driven out to the city. It took Jaddick 45 minutes to drive from the base hospital where he would normally be stationed to the city, not close enough. Jaddick wanted to push closer to the action. And because he decided instead to jump into the back of a Humvee and advance into the danger ground and risk his life so that he could be there when the tragedy took place, because he endangered his life, he saved the lives of 30 Marines who were in battle. They had at the top of the scripture in the Newsweek article, the passage in Isaiah, It says, then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. They put it down as Isaiah 7, 8, but it's not. It's Isaiah 6, 8, but it's okay. They got the book right, so you got to give them some half credit. What would push a man to put his life in danger when he was able to retire and give up? And it was this attitude of who shall I send? Here am I, send me. And because he pushed himself into harm's way, he actually saved the lives of 30 soldiers. Because something more important than his own life was at stake. He risked, even though it was uncertain, he advanced. And because of that advancement, 
he made a difference. I think a lot of times what we want is God to transport us into his will. God, if it's your will, make it happen. And I think what's happening instead is God is actually giving us an invitation and asking us to step into it. God is saying, who can I send? And it's up to us to say, here I am, send me. I want to go. And then what happened, because Jonathan did advance, it actually had impact. Verse 14, in the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half an acre. And it goes on to talk about more of those things. I don't think we're going to cover that today. If Jonathan didn't move forward, everything would have changed. The tide would have turned as it displays out later. It was Jonathan's initiative to take uncertain risk to advance in this role that had had an impact on those around him. It's because he moved and moved with an intent bigger than himself. Remember what it said in verse 12? So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of who? Israel. Then said, the Lord had given them into Jonathan's hand. His idea is he's given them to the hand of Israel. The idea was bigger than himself. The vision was bigger than himself. The desire was bigger than himself. If you could have whatever you wanted, whatever you dreamed, without worry of failure or what would happen, without any fear, if if your dreams could come to fruition, anything that you wanted, your biggest dream could come true, let me ask you something. Would your dream be for the betterment of others or would it just be for you? What do you dream? What do you desire? Are your dreams bigger than yourself or are they just about you? What we see in Jonathan is a person who had a desire bigger than himself. It was for the children of Israel to have victory. And because his desire was bigger than himself and his trust was in a God bigger than himself, he was willing to take initiative, to do something. Even though it was uncertain, he was willing to put himself at risk. He took the steps necessary to move forward, to advance what was going on. And because of that, it had an impact on those around him. Put your life in those situations and try and apply these things into your life. What can you take the initiative? What's the problem you're facing right now? What is the initiative you can take to make things better? to change the circumstance? What is the dream that you want that's bigger than your desire? Is it for people? Is it for your family? Is it to see them come maybe to faith? Is it for a relationship to be strengthened or amended? Is it for success in some endeavor? What do you need to do? What is the initiative you need to take to make it happen? Are you willing to deal with the uncertainty that comes with those things? The risk that comes along with taking those steps that put you in a place of vulnerability, a place where it may fail, it may not work, it may cost you everything. And even if it does, is it worth doing? You see, I think Jonathan, if he would have been killed, he would have said, at least I died for something that was worth living for. And so many times we are not living because we have nothing that we're living for. And we find our lives just stagnant and without life. We're content with so little. And we dream small dreams because the big ones 
costs so much. And we live small lives that have little impact because we don't want to take the initiative, the risk. We don't want to have to advance. We don't really want to impact the world around us, just our little comfort zone. And so what this passage did for me is it told me or asked me, are you going to be like Saul asleep under the pomegranate tree? Probably because he's depressed, because that's what you do when you're depressed. That's what I do, sleep. Or do you have the perspective of Jonathan that says, you know what? Let's do something. Let's make a difference in our nation. I got a sword. Come with me. Let's go start a fight. And maybe God will be with us. Because if he wants to, he could save the nation through a little or through many. And I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to stand up. And this is what I'm going to ask God to do. God, if it's your will, take me to this place of danger. Take me to this place of being uncomfortable. Take me to this place where I am stretched, where my faith is tested. And I have to really trust in you. Because have you noticed when you really have to trust in God, he's really a God who can be trusted? Have you realized that when you entrust yourself to him completely, he ends up being much bigger than you ever thought, much more powerful than you imagined? I've never trusted in God and been disappointed, even when they didn't go the way I wanted them to go, even when things didn't happen the way that was best in my mind at the time or easiest. God has always proved himself to be bigger than I imagined, stronger than I ever dreamed. And his desire for my life frightens me because it's more than I think I can handle. I find myself standing there with a sword and an armor bearer, or maybe it's my wife, and I'm there saying, should we stand up? And I'll never forget my wife telling me, whatever you want to do, I'm with you. I just want you to hear from God. And that was as I was reading this, and I felt like she was my armor bearer saying, whatever you have in your heart to do, okay, let's do it. And I was like, oh, really? I was hoping you'd kind of tell me, no, let's just stay here. Let's be comfortable. And it was scary. And the steps have been hard. And they've been hurtful. And it's been rough. But it's where I need to be. And so I pray that we would pursue the will of God and recognize that many times the call of God is into the dangerous and not the safe. But it's a good place to be because God is good. Let's pray. Father, as I just am reminiscent of this passage and it's working in my own heart, Lord, I can remember many times reading these things and just weeping and just saying, God, I can't. And I remember reading these things and then my perspective would change and I'd say, God, how can I do anything but? And Lord, I pray that my desires would be bigger than myself. God, I think one of the biggest struggles the church faces is selfishness. It's wanting for themselves, for ourselves, and not caring about those that would make us uncomfortable, those that would cost our time and, and our energy. And Lord, forgive us for having dreams that really don't include you. They don't include your heart. They're just selfish, self-centered dreams. 
that will lead us nowhere, that are no bigger than we are ourselves. And help us to hear your voice to the calling that you have. May we take that initiative and follow after you, even though there is that uncertainty and even though there is that risk. May we not grow faint in doing what is right, because in in the right time we will reap that harvest if we won't give up. And so help us to advance, and may that harvest be the lives of those around us. God, may we be so much like you that it's not a matter of, well, have you gone and shared your faith with someone, but we represent you so much that people come and ask us about our faith. That you are so evident in our lives that we are standing up and saying, here we are. And people say, well, come up here. And may we engage the world around us. God, thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, in my life. Lord, the challenges don't stop. The risks don't get easier. The uncertainty about what will happen is always there. But the certainty of who you are and what you can do, that we can be sure of. And Lord, whether I perish or whether I live, I want to be doing your service. I want to be moving forward so that my life is actually a life that is lived. May you energize us to do these things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.